desert, forest, coral reef, ocean. These are just some of the more well-known ecosystems in the world. And their superpowers all come from the sun, that sweet heat that provides the energy that fuels the planet. But how much is too much? These systems are individually complex, and they all have natural processes that can cause disturbances. Lightning can strike, causing a tree to fall. Those parts get earthed, and the process of its roots growing starts all over again. Ecologists often refer to this as succession. That intelligence then programs two cycles, resistance and resilience. Unfortunately, human impact has led to the weakening of both. We now know that when it comes to energy fueling our lives, the earth has been stretched to its limits. Irreversible damage has forced us to find ways to salvage what we have broken. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there have been 16 climate disaster events in 2020 alone. Wildfires rage right now, causing drought, disruption of transportation, power, and our water supplies. Scientists report sea ice floating in the Arctic, melting and disappearing altogether. Ocean surfaces are warming and are a catalyst to tropical storm formation, causing floods and damage. This kind of crisis requires immediate relief. And by relief, we mean global strategy, policy, accountability, and measurement. Jay Femlietti, Jillian Chow Fraser, and Brett Favreau are here to talk about conservation, how to preserve the integrity of ecosystems, and closing the loop by developing new technologies and exploring innovative applications of existing ones. Welcome to our fifth episode of The Edge of Energy, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. The catastrophic situation is playing out in Australia. The smoke visible from space. A New Year's Eve crisis going into 2020. People are telling us this is the worst they've ever seen. The fires have burned more intensely, more ferociously. They seem to have a mind of their own. Satellite imagery is showing that Arctic sea ice is at its lowest levels on record. In northern Siberia, it hit 100.4 degrees. We are looking right now at the all-time record heat for the month of June. A catastrophic Category 4 hurricane bearing down in the U.S. We could be looking at a majority of the surrounding communities flooded with upwards of 9 to 20 feet of water. The two largest wildfires in Colorado history are burning dangerously close, just miles apart. As executive director of the Global Institute for Water Security and a senior water scientist, Jay Familietti spends his energy on climate change impacts on hydrology and water resources. And of course, hosts one of our own Walrus podcasts, Let's Talk About Water, recently selected as the winner in the education and outreach category of the Hashtag Waters Next Awards. Congratulations, Jay, and welcome to the Edge of Energy. Thanks so much, Kofi. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. There's been an influx of climate events recently. Can you explain some of the difficulties experienced by ecosystems as a result of human activities? You know, there's really no part of the world that's left untouched. If we just think about Canada for a moment, 
it's really almost unbelievable. Canada is warming at twice the global rate and the prairies at three times the global rate and, and the north at four times the global rate. And so, you know, there's a great melting going on. And there's also an increasing frequency of flooding and especially this time of year drought. So when we look at places like alpine forested regions and the boreal forest, they're getting drier. They're experiencing more forest fires than they ever have before. Our coastal ecosystems subjected to sea level rise, high latitudes, the tundras, the permafrost is melting, literally destabilizing the land surface there. The prairies where I live here in in Saskatoon, really bearing the brunt of those varying extremes of flooding and drought that are so hard to manage. So, I mean, there's like nothing that's left untouched. My background is oceans. I'm primarily a marine-based scientist. So whenever I think of environmental impacts of climate change, I tend to start with the oceans. The oceans are massively impacted by climate. We tend to associate things like wildfires and, and these hot temperatures that we're feeling on land. But the thing is, versions of that happen in the sea as well. So the water itself heats up. This causes fish populations to move. So if you're a fishing community and you're targeting a species that's been there since, you know, for many, many years, that you might find that population is moving away and you can no longer access it. The water is getting more acidic, which makes it hard for creatures that have shells to make their shells because the shells actually dissolve. It causes deoxygenation. So the, the water can't hold as much oxygen. The list goes on and on. But basically what's happening is the very soup of life that the ocean represents the ingredients of it are changing and it's changing in a way that makes it ultimately more hostile to human life because the species that we depend on for sustenance, for prosperity, and just for the ecosystem benefits that we glean, even the air we breathe largely comes from the ocean. These are things that may not be there for us and we, we see them changing before our eyes and they're changing in very disturbing ways. I think I could add maybe a terrestrial perspective compared to Brett's, but similarly, climate events are very hard on ecosystems. So whether it's extreme weather events like heat waves or wildfires that can be devastating to sensitive species and causing habitat loss. But there's also long-term and more gradual changes that we can see from climate change that changes habitat types, uh, that can hurt, again, those sensitive species that are dependent on certain kinds of habitat that are just being lost in front of our eyes because of those climate change impacts. Uh, so you'll see, you know, range distributions can change, they can contract, and even some ranges expand as well as areas that were previously unsustainable to some species are now open to them. But I think it's important to remember that these climate impacts are not the only things that our ecosystems need to respond to. So these landscapes are also experiencing a ton of pressure from industrial development and different kinds of land use changes. So these are pretty busy landscapes. And now on top of that, you have these additional pressures of these new kinds of impacts from climate change. And yeah, it, it's super hard on ecosystems and you're seeing dramatic declines from some of the most iconic sensitive species. Of course, I have to talk about woodland caribou because, you know, they're, they're everything that I work on. Kind of a classic iconic example of this really sensitive species that is impacted very negatively by land use. One of the most well-studied declines, I would say, in the country, piles of data showing that caribou are intimately linked to the land use change from industrial development. 
How can conservation be a solution in the low carbon transition? Well, part of what's happening is that things are happening so quickly, and that's the human-driven part, that we don't have time to adapt. We don't have time, the animals don't have time, vegetation doesn't have time to adapt. If this were a slow, natural climate change, everything would be fine, but it is not. It's human-driven, it's happening so fast that vegetation can't migrate, and so it's under stress and it dies. If we look at Western North America, the stress that our forests are under, they're dying off. If we look at the Great North and the melting that's happening with permafrost there, there's no time for us to adjust. Coastal ecosystems and sea level rise, I mean, we need managed retreat and we need it really quickly. Everything there is at risk. Coastal shoreline is at risk, it's eroding away. The humans are at risk. They can't move quickly enough. It's a problem the world over. I think that conservation of nature can help in the fight against climate change in a pretty significant way. And I think the first thing that we need to keep in mind is also kind of this look forward of conserving the areas that are of high value of carbon sequestration today and also that have that sequestration potential And by protecting those places, making sure that they're not destroyed or disturbed and removed from the landscape through industrial development or through other kinds of human activities. There's also this really high overlap of areas that can store carbon really well, like wetlands and arboreal forests. Those store all of the carbon underground and they do that really well. They store more carbon than the rainforest a lot of people don't know. But if we really focused on conserving those wetlands and bogs and fens that are throughout our entire boreal forest, we do a pretty good job of getting at this fight against climate change. And the really nice part about this is that those areas that have really high carbon storage potential are also areas that will benefit biodiversity because they overlap a lot with these biodiversity hotspots that we see across Canada too. Conservation is about conservation of energy. So one of the simplest things we can do that avoids us having to build new power plants is simply to consume less electricity. And in some cases, there's a direct link between that and being able to turn off the coal power plants, the oil and gas fired power plants, the things that are making climate change worse we can turn those off faster if we're consuming less electricity. Some of that is a technology question. So for example, shifting to lower draw light bulbs like LEDs, that's sort of a very low hanging fruit. But a lot of it is far more structural, looking at our waste streams and making sure we're not discarding things that we didn't need to discard. Ultimately, we're done when we stop producing carbon emissions from fossil fuel. And so that means all the energy that we generate, the cars cannot run on gasoline anymore because gasoline, no matter how efficient your car is, you have a whole infrastructure in place to get that oil out of the ground, turn it into gasoline and get it to the car. And all of that is contributing to pulling apart our biosphere so that we can't survive anymore. So conservation efforts are about directly reducing the amount of energy we consume so we can more quickly get to that carbon neutral economy. But there's biodiversity conservation as well. And as we're moving from here to that future, we have to make sure habitats are intact so that those species other than humans that humans ultimately depend on, but also have an inherent right to exist, that there's space for them as well. And that we're treating them appropriately so that, you know, we don't have a mass extinction event that is currently underway. 
so we have to when we're we have to do things better than we did before. There's going to be there's been analysis done uh, to show the sheer amount of mining that we're going to have to do to extract metals, minerals, and other materials from the ground to produce that decarbonized energy system. And there's going to be tremendous biodiversity impacts from doing that. And so we, we have to make sure that we're not throwing away our planet's living resources while we're trying to get to a place where the atmosphere is intact for us. If we destroy the habitat to make an intact atmosphere, that's not a win. So we have to make sure that we're protecting both those things as we go forward. Reduce, reuse, recycle has been the mantra in the past few decades when talking about how to handle waste. This only scratches the surface. How important is waste management in the effort to correct damage to our ecosystems? What innovations have been integrated into this industry? Well, the waste management is really critical. Again, we are very much a society that I think has become very consumer oriented. You know, if we can reduce the demand, right, and reduce what's happening at the source, then we're going to be in much better shape. Take, for example, food waste. Okay, If we cut back on food waste, we are producing less food, we're stressing the environment less, we have less waste to deal with, we have less agricultural runoff to deal with, which is a form of waste. Good case is uh, reactive nitrogen. I actually just coincidentally just participated in a meeting today on reactive nitrogen. And it turns out that using less isn't really going to impact our agricultural productivity. I think COVID has really shown us that we could do with less consumerism. I don't think I've bought a new piece of clothing in the last 18 months. I think we've realized that we can do with a lot less stuff. And if we do with a lot less stuff, then less of that ends up in the landfills. I think in terms of technology, good example of what's happening is with plastics and the circular economy. More and more plastics are being produced purely from a recycling stream. And then when they're used, they get recycled. If that could be implemented on a large scale with other consumables, we'd be in really great shape. So there's hope, but it's going to take some champions to promote this. I mean, across all sectors of society, people like myself, scientists getting out there, spreading the word, but also champions in parliament, right, who want to take this forward and run with it. So I'm going to focus on something that people don't often think of as waste, which is carbon pollution. Carbon pollution is a type of waste. When we turn our car on and we drive out onto the street, we're spewing garbage out the back of that car as it drives along. It's just that it gets into the bathtub of our, of our atmosphere. And so we don't see that waste stream there. You know, we can recycle stuff. It is theoretically possible. We're not doing enough of it, but it is theoretically possible to recover materials from solid waste. And we're seeing that. So for example, with electric cars, there's all these batteries that we're going to have that we're going to have to recycle. And there are research streams and, and plausible economically and physically plausible pathways that will exist to turn those batteries into something useful again. They don't have to just end up on the landfill. So long story short, when you think of waste management, don't just think of landfills. Think of the stuff we're spewing into the water and into the air. Because if we don't get that right, we're in big trouble. Actions like reforestation, restoration, eco-engineering implies correcting damage. How much can nature-based measures and other innovations in all spheres help with damage control? So much and so many of the problems that we face today are because we moved away from nature, right? We didn't value the ecosystem services. We didn't, you know, my area is water. 
right? We didn't really realize that these upstream headwater areas and river basins, that's the source of our drinking water. We shouldn't develop it. We shouldn't contaminate it, right? We didn't recognize that our floodplains along the rivers were so important to store floodwaters and to mitigate flood disaster. In fact, you know, we've done the opposite. We've paved over our river channels and we treat our storm runoff like it's an outlaw, like we just want to, you know, capture it and, and run it out of town. We've done these massive conversions of our natural landscapes to agriculture. We've ended up in all kinds of water problems, reductions in biodiversity, climate change problems, and so on. We have to move back in that direction. It's a difficult thing, but some towns are doing it and showing success in small scale. Also, some research has shown that even small amounts of these nature-based solutions can have a huge impact, for example, in some of the farms here out in the prairies. Even leaving small amounts of acreage in a natural state can have huge impacts on biodiversity. Can you explain eco-DRR? That's the Ecosystem-Based Disaster Risk Reduction. You know, in my opinion, the Eco-DRR is really a holistic approach to disaster risk reduction because it really combines the sort of traditional natural resources management or sustainable resources management with, for example, early warning systems. So imagine, you know, a case of forest fires and forest and forest warning. If we had this, which we don't, if we managed our forests really carefully so that we did the occasional controlled burns to reduce fuel, then that would actually reduce the risk. But then you combine that with the early warning system in case there is a fire, maybe it started by lightning or something like that. Think about the the combined impact of those two things together. You're reducing impact, first of all, and you have state-of-the-art early warning systems. So the protection that you're offering is really state-of-the-art. What policies should the government push to conserve our ecosystems? Requiring things like nature-based solutions, I think, are really important. I think requiring our policymakers, and this is going to take some education on the part of people like me who do this kind of research, requiring a more holistic assessment of what's going on within our ecosystem. So not just looking at fire, for example, on its own, but thinking about water, vegetation, the health of the vegetation, the climate. Think about all those things together. We don't actually do a lot of that. There are other things, you know, in in my world, in the water world, we have this big sort of, we separate an artificial separation between water that's on the surface, in rivers, lakes, reservoirs, which we call surface water, and water that's under the ground in our soils and rocks, which we call groundwater. You know, we're kidding ourselves when we manage one and not the other. So we have to manage those both together. Food security and water security together. So sustainable food production along with sustainable water management and sustainable nutrient management, right? We have to be stewards of, of all those things. We don't do that. So that's that's on us, I think. Those of us that have the privilege to do this research, I think, also have the responsibility to communicate its importance and demonstrate how valuable it is. This is the way it should be done today. We understand how everything is linked together. And, you know, it's not a daunting challenge, really, to manage these things together. So there's a term with COVID-19 that people use called COVID-0. 
and it's basically an organizing principle that our target is zero COVID cases. And so we're going to lock down, we're going to put every measure in place so that people do not have COVID. I believe we need carbon zero, not net zero by 2050, but an emergency all of society mobilization that brings us to zero as quickly as we possibly can. And this is going to mean extreme things. This means banning the building of combustion engines. That means closing airports, right? That means shifting to trains, electrified trains. There's a whole suite of policies that all fall under this one vision. And it creates a better future. This is the thing. It's not just about protecting the environment. All these things that are good for the climate tend to be good for people as well. It's not about constraining what we can do. It's about creating a world where we can continue to do those things for a very long time. If you could speak on Bill C-230, if passed, how can we tangibly measure its impact? What solutions have been baked into this proposal? C-230 is requiring a national strategy to redress environmental racism. So personally, having seen how marginalized communities, communities of color, poor communities, indigenous communities bear the brunt of environmental problems, climate change, groundwater contamination, air pollution, I think this is an essential bill. I'm really supportive of it. I think that there's a lot that is baked into it that is really important. So requiring that indigenous communities are at the table right, to have the discussions, just requiring that a national strategy be developed, right? That anytime you can do something at the federal level like that and get that kind of attention, I I think that's really critical. Monitoring is going to be required. And so that gets to the question of how do you measure? How can you quantify if there's been any change? The proof is going to be in the air quality. It's going to be in the water quality. It's going to be in the soil health. And it's going to be in the sickness rates in those regions. I think it also includes compensation. You know, oftentimes these uh, polluted communities have sickness clusters. And so it's impressive, actually, that this bill passed. What role does climate justice play in all this? I think it's essential. And, you know, C-230 speaks to it, but it can't just be part of society. It has to be the whole society. And so without dealing with climate justice, which really sort of addresses some of the environmental racism issues that we that we talked about, as well as things like accessibility and other factors, there's no way we can have global sustainability, right? The UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example, without climate justice, that's not going to happen. So again, it's not just part of society, it's all of society. You know, you're someone who's got your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the industry. What to you are the most exciting innovations that you see coming out around water conservation from a technology standpoint that you think have the most potential to make a real impact? So there's a lot that's going on and has been for a while in sewage recycling. And it's becoming more and more widespread. And, you know, it sounds disgusting, but actually we've been doing it to varying degrees throughout water treatment history. But that becomes really, really important. And again, you know, hugely important in places that, especially municipalities, more cities than agricultural areas, but places that don't have a ready water supply, don't have a big river flowing through and have to rely on a limited amount of groundwater. Desalination continues to be important. It's problematic in the sense that it's energy intensive. It's Right now it's very expensive. 
and uh, you have to do something with the brine, the salty brines that are left behind. But if technological solutions can be found for what to do with those brines or how to push the saline water through a membrane to remove the salts, if some membrane technology can be developed that requires less energy or if it can be done with renewables, then that can become a very important solution. And irrigation is going to become more and more important, is really important for food production globally and may become more important here in Canada. Doing that more efficiently, there's a lot of room to use, we call it drip irrigation technology or deep drip irrigation technology where the irrigation lines are actually buried. We waste a lot of water on irrigation. Even saving a small amount would be huge savings globally. And even things like plant breeding. Breeding plants that are more drought tolerant, that uptake water more efficiently, that can use water that is maybe more saline, doesn't have to be the purest water from you know the spring in Fiji. It can be the water from the groundwater aquifer that's just maybe minimally treated. So there's a very bright future in water-saving technology. Thank you for joining us today and giving us the plan needed to conserve our ecosystems. Great. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all those who helped put the show together this week. Mahira Lashman, Angela Misri, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. And of course, our team at Scotiabank. Look for us on your favorite podcasting app. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.